At Freedom HealthWorks, we're focused on putting medical professionals back in control of their practices. Utilizing a structured, tailored approach to business, startup, and operations, it could make sense for you to work with our professional team to avoid expensive pitfalls and, more importantly, expedite your journey to success. As we all know, time is money. If you're involved in the practice of medicine and desire to practice free of headaches and constraints, reach out for a no-obligation consultative conversation. Call us today at 317-804-1203 or visit freedomhealthworks.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Healthcare Americana. I am your host, Christopher Habig, CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. This is a podcast for the 99% of people who get care in America. We're not clinicians or policymakers. We're patients and caregivers, executives and advocates who are fed up with the status quo, and we have a desire to change it. This podcast brings listeners backstage at innovative organizations with innovative individuals across America that are putting patients first by delivering exceptional care to anyone and everyone. Health insurance is something that can either cause somebody a lot of comfort, cause somebody a lot of anxiety, but it's something that we all believe that we need, and I would say it is a vital tool to help alleviate financial ruin anytime you act interact with a very confusing, very complicated healthcare system. Now, anybody who knows Freedom HealthWorks, who knows myself, who knows the work we do in direct care, might be scratching their head and saying, well, I thought health insurance was part of the problem here into why prices and costs of healthcare were so out of whack, yet, Chris, you just said that it is a very good idea to have it, similar to any type of insurance product that you want to protect the very important assets with health. Obviously, the asset is you and your family's well-being. To help us through this and help understand, you know, maybe we're not looking at health insurance through the right lenses, please welcome Bill Pakluda, author of Maximize Your Health Insurance and just an advocate for health insurance literacy in general. Bill, thanks for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. My pleasure, Christopher. Thanks for having me. Now, I didn't want to paint too negative of a picture of health insurance, but anybody who's listened to the show before says, well, Chris, you're an advocate. You favor just the right plan. Figure out what works for people, not mandating and drilling people over the head and saying, you need to have this. You have to have it. I want people to be comfortable with whatever works for them and their families. And that's why I was really interested to have this conversation with you. You know, you published a book about just health insurance, just literacy in general, Are you finding that there's a lot of misconceptions over health insurance, who needs it, what it actually is, what it needs to cover? I mean, there's a lot of things out there that just make people's eyes gloss over. I don't know where to begin. Um, (laughs) But yes, there is. I've been working in the insurance industry in different facets for over 30 years in different roles. And the one common denominator, if you will, is the patient or the, the individual, and I've worked primarily with people who work for employers, but also who have insurance through the open market. And people are confused on many different levels. And I find that that's a barrier for them to actually get the health care that they need. So, for example, people who graduate from college or into the workforce, you know, they're not taught about health insurance in school. And as you get older, things get more complicated. You get sick. You need your health insurance. How do you navigate the system? At the end of the day, people who have health insurance use it to finance the health care. So really what they're trying to do is, I need my health care, but it costs money. 
So how do I get reimbursed? Or how do I get the coverage that I need? And so it becomes this Rubik's Cube. I don't know how it got here, but I feel like health insurance has evolved to a point where it's not, there's a disconnect. And it's really hard for people to navigate and, and get the health care that they need. In the meantime, you know, they have to wear multiple hats about, well, am I financially have to figure out how things work or how do I navigate the healthcare system at the same time? And, and people give up. That's, that's one of the problems is there's a lot of apathy. After a while, people just give up. Yeah, you brought up an interesting point, and I and I and I wanted to go into that when you know you talked about when people are in college and they get out of the workforce and they say, "Well, I need a job with benefits," and I kind of rebel against that, thinking, "Well, their benefits can be all kinds of different things." But in the traditional sense, when somebody's sitting in an interview and saying, "Hey, do you provide health insurance?" Like, how has that become so ingrained in the American worker that that is one of the key things we need to ask when seeking employment? So that's a great question. So when you think oftentimes compensation and benefits are this package, right? There's a value to it. How much am I getting paid? And what's the value of what I'm getting out of it? So employers, I'm not going to compare our our country to other countries because it's a little different. But benefits, when you think of it, the traditional medical, dental, vision, life insurance, all these things companies provide to employees, it's become sort of the, you need to have this entry level because everyone offers it at least some minimum level and then some. So it's used as, depending on your industry, a way to attract and retain people because you could have something catastrophic. If you didn't have health insurance or you had really horrible health insurance, you could have a lot of -of out-of-pocket. So one way companies help market or, or entice employees. And we've got a great health plan. Your contributions are X and it's cheaper than this. It becomes this negotiating thing to show the value of the investment. And oftentimes, companies are investing anywhere from 20 to 30% more on top of your compensation for these benefits. An interesting item that you call out there is that when Somebody comes into seeks employment, and the employer's like, "Yeah, hey, we have this, we have this health plan over here." You know, right from right from your website, you say sixty one percent of people are just blowing hundreds of dollars each year choosing the wrong health plan. And I only go there because I'm kind of equating those two things in my mind. That when you go join an employer, and you know, no thanks to the IRS tax codes or anything along that that make it hard to purchase as an individual. But you go to your employer and they offer one or two plans. What are the odds that that's going to be the best fit for you and your family's needs? Um, I don't know. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great. I don't, I don't want to take those odds to Vegas. But I will say that what you just called out, I think I cited from a study that was done by some academic people of a really large employer with a lot of people. I think that number is low. And it's actually my, my experience is people are leaving a lot more money on the table or making decisions because my uncle has this plan, he told me what to do, or they just look at one thing, they look at the payroll contributions, they think, oh, I'll go with the cheapest plan. So there's a lot of factors, and this is why health insurance literacy is this thing, and it's, it's kind of, you know, your brain, it hurts when you start thinking about stuff, but really, it's like any kind of literacy. It's like, what do you, what's your basic understanding of, of how to evaluate health insurance? Do you understand the concepts? You have terms, you know how to Pick a plan that meets your needs. Do you even know what your needs are? At the end of the day, a lot of it's often a financial decision, and you have to be able to make a choice with if those two plan. If those are the only two plans you have available, hopefully they're comparable. You, there's ways of figuring out, but that's not always the case. A lot of employers offer more than three or four, and as the more plans are offered and the more complex they get, 
the less someone's ability it is to choose the right plan. So it isn't coming upon whether it's an employer or the open market, for example, I think, and this is where I think there's a disconnect, is to create plans to make it easier for people. I think there's been this proliferation of plan designs and ways to like, hey, how can we save money and behavior modification, all these things, which I think end of the day, people get confused and they don't know how to evaluate. So what is, uh, that's a good segue. Uh, you're leading us right there. I, I don't, I don't, I think you're kind of leading the witness here from my side, but what should people be looking for when they look at either the ACA, the exchange, or when they're joining a new company or, or their insurance plans that their you know, existing employer have changed? What are some of the key things that they should be looking at? Because there's a lot of buzzwords there that I think a lot of people have a cursory knowledge of, but they don't look really below the surface, like you just mentioned. That's a great question. I think it depends on where you are in your cycle. So if you're someone who's entering the workforce versus someone who's been ingrained and you see you're changing jobs, that thought process, the decision is a little different. So for example, if you've been in the workforce, and you're changing your, your employer and you're getting new plans, don't assume what you had before is going to be the same as what you had now or what being offered. So that's the first thing. So you really have to read the fine print. By the end of the day, because of... The one positive thing about Affordable Care Act is that all plans, for the most part, have to have some basic minimum requirements. They're all going to have preventative care, and they're going to have you know max out-of-pockets, and so there's going to be this limit to how much money out-of-pocket. But beyond that, there's still a lot of variability in terms of networks. Do you have a doctor you like to see? Is he or she in this network, right? Because that's going to be less expensive than not. Do you have a lot of medical expenses are you comfortable with having a high deductible because, you know what, if you're healthy, you're not going to have a lot of expenses. You know, maybe paying a lower payroll contribution, but having a higher deductible is okay because you're not expecting, you know, maybe you get some money in the bank to pay for that catastrophic versus, you know what, I don't want a big deductible. I want to pay it from dollar one. So there are these choices about your own health care needs, but it really is, you know, financially you need to add the numbers up, number one, and just to say, what am I paying out of pocket? Because there's a lot of different factors so I think financially looking at, and this is hard, how do you estimate what your health care is going to be for the next year or whatever? And that's, that's usually where it starts. It's almost like a prepaid health policy. And like you just said, it's impossible for most of us to say, well, you know what? Uh, I had a pretty good year, but next year I'm probably going to slip on the ice and, and crack a hip open. So this is going to be a best policy for me. I mean, no one's going to be able to do that. Um, do you think in I always want to ask these questions in, in the most uh, non-confrontational way, but do you think that insurance is complex by design, just looking at the amount of money that exchanges hands? I always often wonder who's at the wheel because at the end of the day, and I've been doing this for years, whether it's directly or indirectly, employees will come to us where in my job or my previous or my other employer, and they just like, they put their hands up. They're like, I'm trying to figure out, I've got this health plan. I'm trying to get my insurance claims covered. They're not getting paid. Or I need to access something. I got all these hoops to go through. So I don't know if it's an efficient system by design. I think from my, what I've seen is that there have been layers of features. Let's call it that, features. That whoever came up, whether it's your benefit consultants, the insurance company, Employers, somebody's coming up with these things to think, hey, how can we save money because of this consumerism model, right? Years ago, 
I don't know if you've heard about this. There's the reference-based pricing, where if you want to get an x-ray, we're going to give you only this much money, so you have to go find the right x-ray, you know, search for one that's going to be, otherwise, if it's above that price, you have to pay. Like, they were trying, to, companies would need to control costs, and that's that's a strategy, if that's, you know, important. But most employers are like, they don't have to do that. So I think a lot of these features came out of just from a cost containment and innovation, if that's the right word. So I don't know if it's really was nefarious. You know, like they, I don't think there was anything negative about it. I think they were in their heart, in their heart, wanted to come up with something inventive that would help manage costs. From a business standpoint, you know, I don't, I don't begrudge anybody from being successful in business. I'm not a huge fan of companies that don't actually produce any services or products. And to me, insurance companies are, are kind of like that. But again. There is a chance for them to play the victim card because by law, they can only transfer a small percentage of their actual revenue down to their profit and income line. And so I wonder how big of an intrusion government has been dating back to, I don't know, basically World War II, where they built out the benefit structure. You know, the IRS is saying, well, these are tax advantaged plans now. The line of question, it kind of goes along that of, you know, do we even have, I guess, what would be considered a free market within health insurance? Or is it so complex that it doesn't function without some type of regulation, current levels of regulation uh, staying in there? I will say that I think the layers of regulation that have come out, and it depends on whether you're an ERISA plan or state plan, there's a lot of different kinds of laws that, you know, Department of Labor laws, business law. I don't think there's any they overlap, and oftentimes you you know you're trying to figure out what's what. You know, so I don't think there's anyone saying, "Oh, let's create these plans," and so that's very seamless to people. No, they they create laws, and they don't understand the, the implications of things down down the road. You know, and so I'd like to think that there is. I think I think it's just like things have evolved over time, and so what's the latest? So like recently, a law was passed about um, surprise medical billing. Now, why would we need a law about surprise medical billing, right? But we had, and this has been going on for years. But there's an example where somebody pushed that through. But is that really getting at the root of the problem? So I don't, I don't know. So what what is the problem about surprise medical billing? So you go into the emergency room, and this is what the law was very narrowly written. But you go into the emergency room, you're unconscious, so you can't say, "Oh, I want my doctor who's in network." Right. Let me interview this person. Are you going to charge me? No, you don't have the option. So whatever, all the services, they have to be covered by the insurance company in network and you can't be balanced billed and, and all this good stuff. So the law is to help protect people from an extra doctor who happened to put his or her hand into the, the operating room and now charges you $500. That's unexpected or isn't part of the in-network negotiating or whatever. So I think it's the healthcare system. And I, I this might be more up your alley, but it is a business. I mean, we still have a disease model. 60% of healthcare costs could be reduced or eliminated if you exercise, eat right, don't smoke, you know, reduce your risk. I mean, all these controllable behaviors. But we don't, as a society, and I don't get on my soapbox, promote that in a real formal strategy way. We say, we talk about it, but we really are a disease model. So it's like, here are some drugs, right? So. It's driving, it, we normally get to the source of the problem. We're talking with Bill Pocluta, author of Maximize Your Health Insurance. And, you know, we were just coming out of that discussion. You brought up a great thing. It's, it's disease care. I've heard sick care. 
we kind of have some gallows humor here within Freedom Health Works that you don't get paid if you actually cure somebody in a typical insurance-based healthcare setting. So it rings very much true of what you were saying there that, you know, you just treat the symptoms. If you no longer have diabetes, then you're worth zero dollars to that hospital down the street. But if we can keep you just sick enough, we're going to keep milking your insurance plan, whatever it is, whether it's private, whether it's commercial, whether it's Medicare. I don't want to go completely tinfoil hat, you know, on this, but um, there's some things out there. You're like, wow, why is there no billing code for actually curing somebody when it comes to third-party reimbursement? Um, Bill, I wanted to switch gears a little bit. Talk about, obviously, you wrote a book, Maximize Your Health Insurance to help what consumers. Who's the audience of your book? Who are you trying to help really understand what policy plans, what the terms mean, and what they can choose from? So about half the people in the United States, half Americans, get their health insurance through an employer or a group like that. And then there's another percentage, smaller percentage, to get it through the open market. So those would be the primary people that I'm... I have knowledge of and I can help, or at least the information I have is applicable to them. So if you're getting insurance through you know, the open market or these are the kind of rules of the road that you can use. Medicare is a whole different animal for people, but it's primarily people who have insurance and their families through their employer. Now, what kind of reception have you gotten uh, from readers, audiences saying, hey, this is insanely helpful or, wow, you're talking about stuff that is so over my head, I can't even start to understand it. That's a great point. So it, it does break it down into a very kitchen table kind of conversation. So I set, off, set out to write the book. First, to practice, I wanted to learn how to write a book and publish it myself. But I'm like, this is a great exercise. And I got into researching it and realized the things that I've been over, over time have shared with employees who've come, that I've supported and the benefit plans that I've implemented and, and managed – these are the same simple strategies, things to look out for, and where people have had hurdles or roadblocks or problems that we've helped them through. So really, the feedback has been that it's a very user-friendly, simple, direct resource, and it's the same information that if you were working at my company, for example, or and you, I was on the telephone with you, we're having a conversation, I would share the same strategies to help you. It seems like it recently there's there's been this push towards high-deductible health plans HSA compliant plans. What's your take on those? So I don't remember the exact year, but I remember when they started to become more popular, um, maybe over 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And initially the buzz or the feeling was, hey, this is going to help solve consumer behavior and help direct people to make choices and put ownership in people's hands to make sure because there's going to be some financial incentive for them. Where I think it fell down or didn't meet those expectations is that it also means that you need to have a system, you need to have tools, and you need to have an educated group of people who know how to navigate and be educated consumers. But most people work for a living or you know, they're focused on other things. They don't have time to learn how to be health insurance experts. They only do it when there's a problem or something catastrophic happens. So I think I don't think it has made people healthier. I think there are some that have become better consumers and get it, especially when there's a financial incentive. But generally speaking, it has been a way for employers to structure plans so that whether you raise deductibles, it's a lot of cost-sharing mechanisms that you can put in place. Whereas when you had HMOs and the flat copay proposition, people didn't have that incentive necessary to, to look at the cost. So there was, that did happen. But I think where it fell down was that there's still tools and education, like resources to help people get visibility into 
the cost of care and how do they research and what do they do with it? Help me find someone who can go to a doctor's office and negotiate the price. The answer is no. Like, I don't know what the expectation was. Maybe you can go find a doctor who char- charged a little bit less, but you can never negotiate. So I think some of the expectations uh, fell short. Obviously, uh, talking to somebody in the, the direct care world, we'll show the prices right on the website, but you're exactly right. Someone comes and says, you know, I see that it's 80 bucks a month. Um, how about 70 And I'm sure there's somebody, there's some doc out there who's going to say, yeah, okay, fine. But, you know, for the bigger stuff, you're going to get laughed out of a hospital because they're going to say, yeah, you and what army is going to pay us X amount of dollars, right? You have no pricing power. The high deductible plans, I, I think it helps employers and maybe insurance companies more than people because what's still missing is the education part. So this health insurance literacy of how do I pick a plan? How do I navigate? How do I use it to my advantage to get the care I need? How do I figure out when I got all these medical claims, these bills coming in the mail, how do I make sense of it all? What do I really owe? It, 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 I don't think that's really been, you know, that problem still exists. So if that's not the Goldilocks plan anymore, are you seeing something out there that is better for the consumer that isn't potentially as uh, financially ruinous if most Americans have, I've seen $400, $2,000 in savings and they have a high deductible health plan that is more than that. Are companies waking up to that reality that they might be bankrupting their employees when they thought they're providing a good benefit? I'm, I'm not seeing it. Simple. I mean that's the that's the riddle, right, Bill? It's like where where does where's it snap back? If things are going, 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 going off, where's that push to say, you know what, maybe we can take better care of our people? Well, I listened to one of your podcasts and a gentleman um, was talking about Medicare and I will say that my brother who once he turned Medicare age, he was he worked for himself, he's independent and he hated health insurance because he had to pay so much, but once he got Medicare, he loved it. It simplified everything for him. Now, I don't know if that's the answer for everything, but if we can come up with a system where there's visibility to, if, if you're going to you know, keep it affordable, whatever that means, and there's going to be a lot of discussion about who pays for it, right? That's another conversation, but making it easy for people to get care and not have that be a hurdle. Financial barriers, you know, that's one reason why people forego getting care or delay it. And that only exacerbates someone's health care, which raises costs, and they end up in the emergency room. That is absolutely true. And, and um, you know, we talked about government regulation and interference in open markets, turning everything over to them and saying, oh, hey, fine, uh, you guys just go handle it. Doesn't doesn't always seem like the best thing, uh, best idea for me to go on, you know, government level minimums here. But I want to touch real quickly on, you know, what your background was, because it's not like you've been doing this your your entire life. You have a very, very interesting story coming out of the mental health world. So give us a little bit of your background there and what you saw and why you decided to now move into where you are. My first, I want to say my first real job, because we all have real jobs, right? I had the paper out job. But um, my first professional job after getting on mental health was working for a health insurance company in the New York metropolitan area. And I, I learned so much. And I saw that side of things. And I, and I, I drank the Kool-Aid. And that's right around when these disease management programs starting to take off. But thereafter, I worked you know, at a consulting company, did auditing at hospitals. So I saw how the, the payment systems you know, were operating. And then I worked on another aspect with Medicaid and consulting to see how 
you know, recoveries and, and claims with Medicaid operated. And then I weave my way back into the traditional corporate benefits administration and, and management. And so that kind of seeing it from many different perspectives, this gave me this point of view of, you know, I mean, there was a discussion about, um, and I can't remember which, I think it was a political uh, election, about should we have a single payer health care? What does that mean? And I just saw that the whole industry of insurance brokers would just collapse. Like, I just felt like there's so much that this economy is based on, right? So there's a lot of people who are doing things. We really can't just shift so overnight with our healthcare system. So this point that I'm seeing is that end of the day, it's really about the people. And if we, if we didn't have to worry about health insurance and paying for it, you know, then we're talking about health literacy itself. How do people take care of themselves? And that's the conversation we're also not having as a, as a society. So, you know, um, the financial part seems to be holding people back from being healthier somehow. And I don't, you know, know those dynamics are kind of interesting. It's a big problem. I mean, we just don't emphasize primary care. You know, again, I kind of laugh and some people might say I have a twisted sense of humor, but I'm always very jealous of dentists because they get to see people every six months like clockwork. You, know, you ask, you pull aside somebody on the street and say, hey, how often could you, do you need to see, go see your dentist? They're going to say six months. You, say, you pull somebody over and say, hey, how often should you go see your primary care doctor? I'm not sure what they'd tell you. They might say, well, never, if I, if I can help it. The last time I checked, I think 30%, I think the, I don't know if it's 30%. Ch- children, obviously, you know, adolescents and younger, it's like 70% or more get their, their regular visits because a lot of times they're tied to immunizations. But once you become a, a, an adult, the percentage goes down to like 30%. If you have an employer group who has more than 30% people getting their preventative care, you're doing great. That's not, I mean, OBGYN gynecological is different. They usually higher percentage, but you're right. It's, it's, um, now to that point, and, and I don't know if this is a, something you have insight on the whole claims billing process, people could be going more often. It's not recorded as a preventative visit. And sometimes that's tied to how claims are paid and how much it's paid. I'm, and I don't mean to be, maybe I am suggesting something, but I, I think that coding and how doctors get paid is another piece of this, which has impact on, you know, you as an individual understanding what you owe and why you owed it. So if you know you went for a preventative care visit, but there's some other, you're being charged and you have to pay money, I'd be like, well, why do you, why did you do that? But I think most people don't question. You're exactly right. I just got asked, uh, I did give an interview um, earlier this week and the, one of the last questions was, hey, you rented a, um, what are those things called like a sky banner that the airplanes tow and you're going to tow it in front of the entire world. What's it say on it? And the first thing that came to mind was, Next time you go see the doctor, ask the price. And to your point, for some reason, we walk into a place and, and maybe we're not feeling well, maybe we're not thinking straight, but we just forget to say, hey, by the way, how much are these services that you're recommending? The default answer is going to be from the physician, well, I don't know. And then you got to just press home, right? You're not going to go out and buy anything else unless you have a checkbook where it doesn't matter. But you're not going to go out and buy anything else where they can't tell you. And it might be 15, 20 minutes before they can actually get you a cash price. The economics are just so backwards because we're using the wrong currency. We're not using dollars and cents anymore. We're using this little plastic card in our wallet. And we're not, we have no idea, to your point, to this whole topic that we're talking about, we have no idea what that little plastic card will even buy us. Or, hey, maybe I'm going to get a 50% discount, but... 
if it's a hundred thousand dollar procedure and it gets me fifty percent, where great, I'm paying fifty thousand bucks. But if that same procedure is ten thousand dollars cash at a different place, who's really coming out ahead in that scenario? So it's an important topic for people to understand. Bill, last question for you here. You know, any words of wisdom, parting advice for somebody who hears this and says, you know what? I'm going through this exact same thing. I need some advice. I need to know who to trust. Maybe it's not the broker who gets paid more by the more insurance they sell me, but how do I find out what's going to be best for my family? A couple of things. First is we need to be, you need to read and um, you have to be informed and that's hard. I know. So get your hands on whatever materials you can at least every year um, so you can have it in writing. The next step would be the actual health insurance company, believe it or not, just to get them on record and ask their, them the questions. They're generally pretty good at at least helping you navigate. And then the third thing would be if you are work, you are employed, hopefully your benefits or HR would be another group if you have that luxury. So, or buy my book. I don't know. <laughs> that might help. for it. I thought I thought that was going to come a lot sooner than that. No, but I, uh, I'm being honest. I just I I don't want to. I appreciate that, and I think people because benefit plans or health plans vary, and so I really want our people to be self sufficient. I think that's important, but it may take some time to get there. Bill Pacluda, author of Maximize Your Health Insurance. Thank you for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. My pleasure, Christopher. Thank you so much. That's going to do it for this episode of Healthcare Americana. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out online at healthcareamericana.com to catch previous episodes. Subscribe to our mailing list and visit our fantastic online store. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Check out healthcareamericana.com to hear all our episodes, visit the shop, and learn more about the podcast. Healthcare Americana is produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro and managed by Melissa Turpin. Healthcare Americana is brought to you by Freedom HealthWorks and Freedom Doc. If you've been struggling to get the care you need and the access you want, it's time to join your local Freedom Doc. Visit freedomdoc.care to find the practice location nearest you. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.